You're listening to Housing First. KMOJ explores housing challenges and opportunities so our community can thrive. Here's your host, Freddie Bell. Hello and thanks for joining me. A note before we dive in. We at KMOJ have been hard hit by the death of George Floyd. We mourn his loss and pray it will lead to systemic change and not just here in Minneapolis. Together with the COVID-19 virus, George Floyd's murder has exposed the consequences of historic racism. These recent events have made social and economic disparities sharper, and we'll be reporting on that in the future. The show you're about to hear was recorded and produced in early spring, before we knew about the virus. But I think you'll agree the issues and stories we're about to tell are more relevant than ever. A few months ago, KMOJ held an event to talk about housing in our community, and I had the honor of welcoming the audience. We're so excited that you take your time to be a part of this evening's Housing First, a community conversation. And this event is happening because KMOJ's staff and our volunteers, we got together a couple of months ago in November to think about what we could do that would help our community with the challenges of the current housing landscape. As I said that night, we came together to get some questions answered, questions that our staff and volunteers had based on their own housing experiences, many of which were not good. I can tell you it was a moving and informative night, and now we're going to share highlights of the event with you. It was moderated by our program director, Zany Glover, better known as Zany K. We're all here together to, to work toward figuring out how to make housing safer, more affordable, and accessible. So we ask that everybody approach the topic, approach our panelists with respect for all. With that said, let's make some introductions here. The panelists that night were Interim Executive Director of the MPHA, Tracy Scott, Researcher Dr. Brittany Lewis and legal aid attorney Joey Dobson and Ward 5 council member Jeremiah Ellison. They set the stage for the Q&A by talking about how we got into this mess. Council member Ellison reminded people that the federal government used to pay for public housing and a much bigger share of services people need. But that ended with Ronald Reagan. We started relegating affordable housing to the private market and then we subsidize it. Right. Um, and, uh, and we started trying to get the private market to solve all these issues. And same thing with health care and child care. And, and so then people aren't just rent, rent burdened. Uh, they're burdened in all these other ways that they're, that they're not used to. And I think that's really the environment that we find ourselves in, in now. All four panelists explained how they're trying to make the best of the situation. Joey Dobson, the legal aid attorney, says one goal of hers is to slow down the pace of eviction. Minnesota nationwide is tied for the third fastest eviction process in the country. So we like to think we're Minnesota, right? We're nice people. We do think we try our best, right? We're, we're, we have a warp speed eviction process from the minute that a case is filed to the time that you could be out on the street, eight days. Dr. Brittany Lewis led a study on eviction, which has had national impact. She pointed out that she doesn't do research for its own sake, but to change policy. But I also believe that when I produce these research products, I have to do that by placing those that are the experts at the center. That means that the folks most impacted by housing instability are experts and need to be treated that way and engaged that way. Um, so every one of the research projects that I have led, 
um, are often multi-year projects because one is about building reciprocal relationships with intention to move research conversations to policy action. And it takes time and care. So through her work, Dr. Lewis has made policymakers listen to the experts, including black women who have been evicted and neighbors getting priced out of gentrifying buildings. Uh, we are the largest landlord, uh, but we're also serving the families with the greatest need. On average, our families earn fifteen to $16,000 a year for a family of four. Finally, there was Tracy Scott, who told the audience the MPHA has been abandoned by the federal government and forced to find new ways to provide for the 26,000 people it serves. The other part is about 40% of the individuals that we serve are children. And when we look at housing first and where do we go from here, it's also about making sure that we break that cycle of poverty as much as we can. And we understand that stability, housing stability is such a predictor of future uh, success and, and progress. Together, the panelists established that housing problems are serious and ongoing. The racist housing policy led to many of those problems that help is available for tenants who need it, and that change at a local level is possible. But no one was there to speechify. We had gathered to share information and talk about solutions. By a round of applause, how many people in the audience think affordable housing, the whole landscape is improving? Make some noise. Okay, very few. If you think it's getting worse, make some noise. I would ask the same question of our panelists, Tracy. You want to address that? We need more housing. So, no, it's not getting better. I'm from a group called... Um, um, Take your time. Take your time. Part of Street Voices and part of um, free, Freedom from the Streets. Um, we have two groups that is homeless, homeless, forming homeless people, and on the verge of being homeless. And we came together and we talked about how to do this project. The night's first question was about a plan to build a cluster of tiny houses to give homeless people not just a place to stay, but a sense of belonging to a community. The question was directed to Ward 5 Council Member Ellison. It's five of us that work on it and that we went to District 5 and um, asked him and kept showing up wherever he was at. Like now. Kept <laughs> <laughs> showing right up now. and he had done it and I was, and I'm thanking him for that. All right. You want to fill us in a little bit and give us some more background on the project? Absolutely. So the so the project she's referring to is, is called Envision. Uh, at, at Minneapolis, we we really relied on Envision. Council right. member Ellison explained that Envision is a partnership with Hennepin Healthcare and the University of Minnesota. The idea is a couple of years old, but about to move forward. Uh, with Envision Project to create the cluster development or um, a policy where now this, these, these types of buildings are gonna be uh, permitted in the city. And, uh, and the next step is figuring out a lot where we can, where we can try one out and pilot one out. Uh, and I'd be happy to have it in, uh, in Ward 5, and I know a couple of lots in, ward, in my ward have been kicked around, and so, um, so yeah, so I'm really excited to. That to sounds that. fantastic. That actually- but the fact is that if you're on a public housing waiting list or recently evicted or unable to make rent, you need help now. That's a question Dr. Brittany Lewis challenged Councilmember Ellison on, 
She wanted to know what obstacle kept him and other elected officials from turning ideas into action. Where have you seen these ideas successfully implemented? But then also, where do you see the challenges in taking ideas into action? And whether it's supports you need from a federal or state level, or, you know, where are those inroads that people just might not understand? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So there have been a couple of policies that I feel like uh, uh, I'm seeing get put into implementation, right? So we have the uh, the renter protections, which are in the implementation phase. Uh, they'll be going into effect in June. Uh, and so that sort of, we're, we're sort of working through that process, right? Because you're right, as a council member, uh, I kind of deal with it all at the idea phase, right? Where I have seen policy implemented um, just in my first two years of office it was really with the renter first policy. And the renter first policy wasn't an ordinance and it wasn't, um, it, it's, it's mostly just kind of an, um, uh, uh, really a glorified staff direction. It's an internal uh, document that staff uses to make different decisions. Uh, I'll try to tell you the fast version because we're because re- it gets, really gets into the weeds. But essentially, the city had a practice of uh, condemning buildings or revoking licenses, which in almost every case, they needed to be either condemned or revoked. But there was a tool that we were leaving on the table called the Tenant Remedies Action that um, that we were not deploying. And the reason that that's important is because when you revoke a license or when you condemn a building, you do punish that landlord who owns that building. But who do you punish the most? The tenant who has to move out, who's now gone from living in an undignified living condition to now being out on the street, right? So the Tenant Remedies Action, what it allows us to do is it allows the city to take not the property, the property still owned by the landlord, but it allows us to take the rental business and, and, and hand it over to, um, uh, to someone who's going to uh, uh, run the business part-time if the landlord has been negligent in their duty in running the business. The city and, uh, then works to make the repairs, bring the building back up to code, and then we sort of stick the landlord with the bill. Now, this makes it so that the housing can all of a sudden be again, dignified, at least at least minimally up to code, but we didn't displace the tenant in the process. And we weren't using this tool, right? Um, with the renter first policy, you know, I said, if this does nothing else, I just want us doing more TRAs, right? Uh, just so we can keep people in their home. Uh, we went from doing, I think, five TRAs uh, to now upwards of uh, over, I think a little over 30, uh, kind of before and after this policy. Um, and that's not like 30 homes, that's like 30 cases, right? Uh, that's potentially hundreds of people that uh, maybe before would have been out on the street because their property was condemned or their landlord was, uh, the license was revoked. But now here we are and we're able to step in and work with a third party administrator that, to then keep them housed. To me, that's really important. And that's the kind of outcome I really hope to see uh, uh, from policy. And I had a bunch of other stuff I was going to go to about the housing continuum, but we can kind of wait for more questions for that. Okay. Is there anybody else in the audience with a question? Okay. I thank you all for this opportunity tonight. I really need the information. Um, I want to be a bit facetious and say that there is no affordable housing. Uh, affordable housing for me does not exist. Um, and it's it's rather personal because I'm stuck in a situation in a place where I no longer want to be. Dr. Lewis, you speak to me. You speak to my heart. You speak to my soul. All the other panelists, I feel as if 
I could hook up with you guys, each and every last one of you, on my own behalf and perhaps future. And Dr. Lewis, I say that you speak to my heart because, because of my financial situation. Um, I worked for many years. Um, I worked for seven years as a receptionist at the State Board of Public Defense Office. I worked for seven years as an administrative assistant at the University of Minnesota. Um, I took off work one day for a cold and wound up disabled. Um, not what I was looking for at all. Again, why I'm saying you speak to my heart is because housing is quite, is definitely necessary, but there's more to it than that. Like with the homeless, there are reasons behind certain things. Is there, there's a wholeness um, and a wellness that also needs to be addressed. So I just want to say thank you, but also for, you know, with public housing, well, I've been on the list again for over a year already. And when I went in and put in my last application, it was with the understanding that I had preferential treatment because I am disabled. And yes, there are some circumstances that go along with that as well. But I called and checked today and they still can't tell me when I'm going to get to the top. I'm bottom line, I'm stuck where I am. I need resources. I need help. Um, my entire being is crying out. How can you all help me? Thank you. So I, I want to say, first and foremost, I appreciate your willingness to share your story. Um, there is deep power in your voice. Um, and it reminds me of so many other powerful stories that I have heard. Um, when Councilmember Ellison was talking about buildings being condemned, I'll never forget the, the gentleman I interviewed who had his bracelet on still from checking himself in the psych ward the night before because his building had been condemned. And they gave him 15 minutes to get all his belongings. And then he said he was a former addict and all he wanted was a drink, but instead he went and checked himself into the psych ward. He had gone through a transitional living program, got clean and got his first apartment. And you can only imagine the condition of this apartment if it had been condemned. But he was very proud of that apartment. I remember the black woman who had worked for Target for 15 plus years, got cancer, then had to go on disability. You can only imagine the corporate process of actually getting on disability and how long it took and how long she was behind in her rent, but they still evicted her anyway. There are so many stories like this. I remember the woman who was in her 60s who had two foster children, both of whom had cancer, who was afraid that she was going to get evicted. And I remember her telling me this story as we sit in her living room crying together. She was at the children's hospital taking the young boys to their regular treatment, and she's crying. And the nurses are asking her what's going on. We're a prideful people. It doesn't feel good to ask for help, especially when you feel like you'll be treated in less than human when you ask for it. So she finally decides to share with the nurse what's going on. And then she learned, I guess at the Children's Hospital, there's a cancer um, fund for families who are under economic distress. She did not know that even existed. They wrote her a check right there, but it took Hennepin County over 40 days to tell her anything. 
they actually end up granting her the relief in Hennepin County. They sent it to the management company and she never saw that money. There are so many stories. And I want to honor the fact that you're here and you're sharing it. Because if you don't share, they will erase your story. So I, I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate the thousands of families that entrusted me with their stories. I take them everywhere I go. Data can tell you anything you want if you splice it that way. It can create pretty maps. It can create pretty diagrams. But it doesn't have any heart or humanity connected to it unless you actually engage with the people most impacted. I believe deeply in mixed method research. We need to take the charts and maps and give them life. Because that's what moves hearts and minds of people, not charts. So I appreciate you sharing your story. Um, I'm honored to be able to receive it. Um, and I use them everywhere I go to push people who are in positions of power to do something differently. So thank you. I was trying to hurry up and grab the mic because I know when Dr. Lewis starts speaking, it always makes me want to cry. <clears throat> anyway, just great information. Thanks. Um, my question is that Minnesota has, we have some of the largest disparities in the country. When we look at education, when we look at employment, um, and it's large between people of color, especially uh, black folks and, and between black folks and white folks. Um, my question is, you, you, Dr. Lewis, you talked about um, interrogating the why things are. I'm trying to understand when we look at housing, we have some of the biggest housing disparities as well, especially around home ownership and affordable housing. It's the tightest housing market since the Great Depression. How did it get that way? And what in your positions are you doing to challenge that, to make it so folks, when we have such uh, low wages and the housing markets continue to go up. We're losing um, uh, naturally occurring affordable housing every single day. What is the city, what is folks like you doing to make sure that folks who are working minimum wage jobs can afford to live in a dignified place? I'll start in my fellow panelists, I'm sure could add. Um, I'm not sure if um, many of you in the room saw the documentary Jim Crow of the North, um, there has a deep rooted history of how we even got to this place. Um, and the history endures. And I think our cities, our cities who are trying to have an equitable framework are trying to figure out how to implement policies that try to address a hundred plus year history. The gap between home ownership, as you noted, from close to 25% African-Americans to 75%, white. how do you fix that? when it's been written into the fabric of ownership, mortgage loans, federal loan policies, whether it's talking from blockbusting to our current moment. It's almost like we're trying to undo decades of strategic exploitation, discrimination, et cetera. For us on the research to policy side, when I describe relationships like what we have with the city of Brooklyn Park, they're asking us explicitly help us figure out the best ways to implement policies to address that. But what's so interesting is they were willing. We, we can't force cities and entire regions to adopt an equitable development framework, right? Um, the city of Brooklyn Park approached us. 
there's also been, you know, a lot of challenges in maintaining that relationship. 85th and up, it's really white and wealthy. 85th and down, it's really poor and people of color. The way that even the city was developed historically makes the questions that the city of Broken Park is asking extremely challenging. So now how do you address decades of historic investment that really was never meant to serve people of color? And some cities are asking them those questions. Some cities are actively trying to figure out what that looks like. Less, I would argue, are actually, they're more not doing that, in my humble opinion, than the example I'm giving, right? And we are intentionally partnering with folks that have an ethic and are even willing to have the conversation where most folks aren't even doing that, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, if I'm slow to jump into an answer, it's just because I could really start talking and I really want to hear from the rest of the panel. But and like the other gentleman said, I could, I could really listen to Dr. Bernie Lewis talk all day. So th there's a few things that, that come to mind. If you were to really try to chart how we got here, I feel like you would just look like some kind of conspiracy theorist, right? You could create like a crazy chart on right. the, on the wall. Right. It's right. just like, how do we get here? Um, and, and, and that chart is worth making, by the way, right? Yeah. And people have certainly, have, have certainly gone that way. <laughs> right, there's truth. There's a lot of truth to it, right? And um, I, I think about things like, I was reading, you know, a while ago, I read the book, uh, Nobody by Mark Lamont Hill, and he talks about how, um, you know, the Pruitt-Igoe buildings, um, I think, and um, in St. Louis, Missouri, and how really the problem with them was that, like, you know, they were built in this, in this phase where they were public housing, sure, but originally what they were supposed to look like, people kept cutting corners on, on, the, uh, on, on the price tag. And so you get this building that was supposed to be like this affordable, like almost utopia, right? And um, then you get rid of this lighting and you get rid of that green space and you change that material. And all of a sudden it's like, a dump real fast, then you destroy that. And all those folks are displaced from that place now. And they end up in places like Ferguson, Missouri. Right. And so like, I mean, you really could chart a course for how people got where, where they got, you know, and I don't, I don't mean to say this to like sort of, uh, 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 uh take any pressure off the city. I think that there's policy. I could list off the policies that I'm working on and that I'm leading on. But the thing that sometimes uh, feels a little daunting to me as a council member is I will look at the long list of policies that I'm either leading or supporting. And I'll think, man, it, it's not enough, right? And, and the, the real policy that would undo or that would have a real shot at undoing these inequities, quite frankly, is reparations. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm grateful for people like Ta-Nehisi Coates and other folks who have advanced that conversation because I feel like a decade ago, you probably would have got laughed out the room talking about reparations, absolutely, absolutely. right? Uh, but the, I mean, but if you really want to undo, I think these historic inequities, that's, we really start we need to have a, a, a serious conversation about reparations. In the meantime, I'm happy to, do security deposit caps, right? And I'm going to work hard on that, right? I'm happy to force us to change the way that we regulate housing, and I'm going to work hard on that. I'm happy to make sure that we put as much money into housing and that we are uh, uh, leveraging every single thing, every dollar and, and, and every sort of policy we have to make sure that we get these developers to build 30% at the area median income, which is the most affordable housing you can build. Um, um, uh, or lower if we can, right? But until we really have that conversation about reparations, then we're really dancing around the issue, right? I feel, um, and, and I'm happy to be a steward of my neighborhood to, to, to fight on that front line. Uh, but to me, that's really how you, how you undo it, um, is with large policies like that. 
Just briefly, I think it's just really important, and this idea has come up in a number of ways tonight, of thinking about, we're talking about people here, and like Dr. Lewis said, I mean, we're talking about housing, the structure, but we're talking about people in their lives, and, you know, the, the, um, woman who shared her story is talking about health and we're talking about, we're talking about jobs and health and wealth and income. Um, what resources people have, where are they going to go to school? How are they going to live their lives? Right. That's ultimately what we're talking about. And it just so happened. I mean, having a roof over your head is just really crucial to being able to do all of those things. And so, you know, to a question that was posed by the moderator a little bit ago, are things getting better or worse? Well, I don't know. I mean, I worry that they are getting worse, right? When you, we've got homelessness, you know, the point in time studies that they're doing, more and more people are homeless. We talk about the spectrum of um, income earners. Well, actually, at the end of the continuum, those people don't even have a home, whether it's public housing or shoddy housing or any, any housing. And I'm not saying any housing is better than no housing. We've got a really big continuum of, and, and a lot of crises going on right now. And when it comes to the ways that race is embedded in all these things, it, it's all connected, right? I mean, you've got... Who's more likely to get arrested for having a um, having marijuana on, on their person, right? We know who that is. That same person is then that much more likely to be screened out of an apartment that they want to apply to. And then they've got to, maybe they um, their landlord can intimidate them and hire rent or make them do extra work around the house or, or make them feel intimidated. And then maybe they get an eviction filed against them. And then maybe they have to miss a couple of days at work to go to court. You go into housing court, it's almost all of the eviction cases, the tenants are people of color, but specifically they're black people. This is the ongoing, as Councilmember Ellison said, this this doesn't just date back to FDR. I mean, the, maybe some of the solutions do, but we're talking slavery here. And this is that's where I totally agree that um, one of the things that needs to happen, which isn't really a housing policy issue, we don't put it in that category, is People need the, the means to live their lives. You know, welfare checks, M MFIT dollar amounts haven't increased with the way the rest of the economy has. Rents sure have, but the amount of money that people have, minimum wages haven't. These things are all tied together. How we police, how we screen, what information we can use in denying people access to housing. These are all interrelated. Um, and I think we need to get at it from all of these angles. I want to give a hopeful note here. <laughs> so while we do have the red lines and the, the covenants that have driven the history of the city, we do have some hope. The Housing Authority has over 700 single-family homes throughout the city. It is the only sort of affordable housing that is in almost every ward. So if you look south, um, it gets sparse. But we do have public housing down there. And it is the only, it's, it's our greatest resource for families with children uh, when it comes to public housing. And if children are our future, then that's part of it. The other piece there is that I go back to this whole idea of collaboration. We've got to preserve that public housing uh, for those families for our future but it can't come from a, just a single source. And so I do want to commend uh, Councilmember Ellison and the rest of the city council for a program, a policy program that I think has a positive effect on our community and it's called Stable Homes, Stable Schools. And that's where we're talking about helping families that are homeless or at risk of homelessness 
in our public school system and helping to stabilize those families and, and more importantly, the children in those families so that they can stay in school, so that they know that they have a place to go home at night and they can focus on their studies and they can focus on their growth. And that program is a collaboration between the Housing Authority, the city of Minneapolis, um, we have private funders, the Polad Foundation, the YMCA, and others who are all gathering around this concept that it's not just about the housing. It's about how we help families thrive. And that collaboration is a good example of what we have to do in this community to move this needle forward. It's not just about the buildings, as we've said. But that's a perfect example, though, where policy actually is in action. And it's, a, and it's a good way, a good thing to do more of in the future. You've been listening to Housing First. KMOJ explores housing challenges and opportunities so our community can thrive. Housing First is produced by KMOJ and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Welcome back to Housing First. KMOJ explores housing challenges and opportunities so our community can thrive. Once again, here's your host, Freddie Bell. Hello and thanks for joining me. A note before we dive in. We at KMOJ have been hard hit by the death of George Floyd. We mourn his loss and pray it will lead to systemic change and not just here in Minneapolis. Together with the COVID-19 virus, George Floyd's murder has exposed the consequences of historic racism. These recent events have made social and economic disparities sharper, and we'll be reporting on that in the future. The show you're about to hear was recorded and produced in early spring, before we knew about the virus. But I think you'll agree the issues and stories we're about to tell are more relevant than ever. This is the second part of our report from the Housing First event KMOJ held a few months ago. If you haven't heard part one, I suggest you check it out. In part one, we talked about new tenant-friendlier policies in Minneapolis and how ideas got turned into action that can improve lives. We had a lively audience and a stellar panel, including Interim Executive Director of the MPHA, Tracy Scott, researcher Dr. Brittany Lewis, legal aid attorney Joey Dobson, and Ward 5 Council member Jeremiah Ellison. Our moderator was KMOJ Program Director Zany Glover, better known as Zany K. Here in Part 2, the panel and audience members have a lot to say about eviction. Hello, my name is Sean Lewis, and I'm the clinic coordinator for the Volunteer Lawyers Network. Monday through Friday, I'm in housing court all day. Um, and one of the things that is perplexing to me is the accumulative effect of having eviction actions on someone's record. Uh, the saddest thing, it only takes one eviction action to make you homeless. Only one. Getting an eviction action on your housing record happens very quickly. In fact, when I meet with, uh, when I connect uh, tenants with landlords, you know, I will search their name because sometimes they know they don't know there's more eviction actions on their housing record. They think they only have one. I may find two, I may find three. And the laws are very tilted, very heavily to the landlord and property management companies. And uh, it is making people homeless, you know. 
And so we do have a crisis here. I'm, I'm a native Minnesotan, and I will say that I have seen homeless people. I've seen them hide themselves. I've seen this community hide homeless people, but they're very visible, not only on the freeways, but you see them in the Skyway system, and you see them out in public areas, and you know we have a very serious issue. And I, I, I will say that um, we need to, to really move quickly on this because it's destabilizing. The African-American community is totally devastated, the American Indian community. Julie, as an attorney, can you respond to that? Absolutely. Thank you, Sean, for your comments. And um, you're exactly right. There's no other bill that anyone in this room has that if you're one day late on that bill or you're $1 short on that bill, it could have such a devastating impact on your life other than how we do evictions here in Minnesota. You are one day late, a dollar short, as we say in the office, and the landlord can go down to court, pay $299 and file a case against you that you don't, you won't know about necessarily, at least not for a while. And it's, keep, it's potentially keeping you homeless or making you homeless. There's no other bill that has such an outsized impact on your life um, than how we operate evictions and, and the, the way that they stay on your record. There's, these just highlight a lot of, I think, policy area or areas for policy change that we really need to look into. Um, there are places in, in the country where evictions are confidential until there's a result, until they figure out what actually happened. That's what the justice system is supposed to be about. It's about let's, let's find out what's going on here. Who's right? Who's wrong? Is somebody right or wrong? Let's find the truth. Let's find the justice. Um, and unfortunately, that's just not how we're doing eviction law here in Minnesota. That's just not how it works. Go ahead. I just wanted to co-sign that and and say, um, you know, that was one of the reasons why when we were, uh, when I was authoring the limited look back policy, that was one of the exact things that I wanted to get at. It's not strong enough. And honestly, the le the limited look back policy, I think it, I'll be frank, uh, it will be violated, right? Because they can still see, right? And what we're doing in the city of Minneapolis is trying to say, well, you can see somebody's eviction history, but you can't, but at a certain point, you can't use it to deny them housing. And people will do that, right? But there were limited, there were limitations to what we could pass at the, at the, at the city level because of state law, right? Um, and, uh, and I'm still very hopeful that we are going to, that at, at minimum, we're virtue signaling, signaling, telling the courts and the state, hey, look, we don't, Minneapolis does not approve of uh, this type, type of thing haunting people on their housing record for X number amount of time. And at the most, then we're going to give people some leverage uh, to either report violations to the city or to engage in a private right of action, right? So that's that's really what that policy is looking to get at and, 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 and why we pursued it. Um, but it's absolutely, I think, awful the way that um, uh, that we sort of that we put people in that position. Well, uh, quickly, if you're facing eviction right now, what can you do? What what do you do? Who can you turn to? Absolutely. So, I mean, like I said, legal aid represents tenants in eviction cases. So, call legal aid as soon as um, you know that there's a case. Absolutely, show up for court. Sometimes landlords will say, oh, it's okay, you don't need to go to court. We got this all worked out. Go to court, go to court. We've got lawyers at court every day um, also who are there down at Hennepin County Government Center. Um, if you're not really sure what to do, we've got folks there on the front lines if you didn't have a chance to call us beforehand. Um, but please, it, it's really important that you, um, you know, evictions are simple, or they should be maybe kind of simple, but often there's a lot of rights that tenants don't necessarily know about because we make the system unnecessarily complicated and fast, and the ability for them to figure that out is... And, and if you can't remember to call, like, who to call, you can call your city council member. 
please call me. I'm just going to tell you to call Joey, but, but call me. <laughs> He's got my number. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and we'll get you connected. Uh, I do want to thank Sean for being a volunteer lawyer. I, I think that that, that resource is, is also um, um, much needed. I can speak to the public housing. And, and so and I think it's a really important point. In public housing, your rent is 30% of your income. And, and we take our public mission really, really uh, strongly in that even if someone is late on their rent, and again, 30% of their income, uh, that we work with those families. We do everything we can to keep people housed. And so, uh, uh, Joey, thank you for bringing up the, 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 that eviction is so fast in, in, in the city, in the state. But um, I, can, I can say quite confidently that our public housing families, if, that, if there's an issue, we're having that discussion, and it is not quick. It is a two- or three- or four-month process before we ever get to a point where we have to say we have to take another, another uh, direction. I'm Tommy Johnson. I'm the legislative officer for the Veterans of Foreign Wars. We believe that no American veteran should be homeless, ladies and gentlemen, because no American should be homeless. I'm here because I saw the housing first thing and we believe that in ending veteran homelessness you have to have housing first. You can't get better if you don't know where you're going to sleep. We are very concerned. President Obama set the goal of ending veteran homelessness. Right now there are 78 communities in over 30 states from Las Vegas to New Orleans to Des Moines to Philadelphia, 78 communities. Minneapolis is not on that list. And that's not acceptable. Well, one thing I did want to say just about homelessness is, is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, I've been told because I've only been on the city council two years that, that historically the city hasn't kind of, hasn't entered into the fray uh, uh, in that conversation right around homelessness around getting folks housed uh, and and I think that we were forced as a council to change that direction um, when you had the wall of forgotten natives uh, that happened last year and the city stepped in with a lot of support from the county and it was a really imperfect solution but it got folks off of the street for the polar vortex, which I think um, I, I really do believe would have been devastating if you would have had folks out there in negative 40 degree temperatures. Um, this year, uh, I'm working with, um, with uh, uh, Angela Conley, uh, to open up a, a shelter over north um, that's going to be specific. That's going to be specific for women um, with uh, with culturally competent services geared towards Black women, women in particular, uh, uh, because the the rates of homelessness um, uh, among Black women are increasing, and um, and, uh, and and it really is unacceptable, um, and it, and it goes hand in hand with increased rents and all the things that we've been discussing all night. But I do think that um, I, I do think that homelessness, uh, especially at the city council, we can sometimes not. Like we 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 can be bad collaborators with the county. Often we can uh, not discuss it ourselves, and I think it's something that um, uh, if you've got uh, 70, 87 cities that have ended veteran homelessness, um, then I think Minneapolis should be on that list, and 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 would be willing to work with you on that. Um, and in the meantime, I think making sure that over north, especially that we're making sure that we are. are uh, uh, not allowing black women to become the highest increasing uh, homeless population in, in the city, uh, I think it's our duty to prevent that from happening. So just wanted to say that.
my question is for Joey. Um, are you aware of what happens to a person once they file and put their money in escrow? Are you aware of what happens to their record? Yes. Okay, can you... Sure. So are, you're, um, are you talking about a situation where the landlord's not making repairs at their home, right? So the loss of the landlord, it's the landlord's duty to keep the place habitable, to take care of the repair issues. That's the landlord's job. Um, and the city has specific housing code rules of how it's supposed to be. So then, so how it works in Minnesota, if your landlord isn't doing that, what the law says is that tenants got an obligation to pay rent, but a landlord's got that obligation to keep the place healthy, safe, in code compliance, that kind of thing. And those two things are tied together. We don't explicitly allow tenants to just not pay their rent, to withhold their rent until the landlord makes the fix. Instead, we have a, a court case, a, a kind of court action you can file called this rent escrow case. So what you're doing is you're putting your rent in the courts, you know, so the court hangs on to it and you start this case to um, decide, you know, who, who really should get that rent? Should the tenant really owe it all because the landlord wasn't making the repairs. So what happens is you file, you can file that kind of case against your landlord, and then the court will have a hearing to for you to bring the evidence, here's the pictures of what's going on at my home, here's testimony, witnesses, that kind of thing. And then the court makes a decision, all right, so the, the rent is $1,000 a month. You know what, I think actually this tenant should only have had to pay $500 this month because of the problems that were going on at their place. So it's a court, it's the initiation of a court case that um, you can have a lawyer help you out with. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of what happens to that um, tenant's record after they put their money in escrow because they're relying on someone to help them because they can't get the landlord to do the repairs? So that case is public. You know, the, our default in our judicial system, we've decided as a society, court cases should generally be public. But that shows up as a public record. It wouldn't be an eviction in that case. Sometimes the eviction gets filed first and the tenant puts their rent into court um, on the back end. It can work either way, but it can absolutely show up. And I, I do know there are landlords who will look and see, oh, this is a tenant who stands up for their rights. Yes, so maybe I don't want to rent to them. Exactly. So that is why I'm standing here, because I want to make that clear, that that mm -hmm. tells us not to fight for our rights, and that I have clients and that are afraid to go and put their money in escrow to fight for repairs yep. being done in their property because they don't want a negative strike on their record. Mm -hmm. So that negative strike is not helping them at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely, and I would encourage anybody to come talk to a lawyer if they want. If they're worried about these things, you can also call the city three one one to get an inspector involved. It's good to also be talking with a lawyer who can give you some confidential legal advice and represent you throughout that process. Absolutely, because that's that's what landlords can do right now because of the the vacancy rate being so low. They've got a line out the door of someone who will rent that apartment and not complain about the bed bugs and not complain about the mold that's exacerbating their kids' asthma based on where their, their families had to live for decades and decades and decades, right? So absolutely, it's being that is being used as a tool to keep people down and not um, enforcing their rights. But I really, all I can do right now is urge anyone in that situation to call, get legal help, come down to housing court, talk to a lawyer. And helping to explain to people what will happen to them before. I mean, on your end, you can do that. You can say, yes, we can help you with this, mm -hmm. but you will have a reflection on your record that could potentially stop you from receiving housing in the future. Mm -hmm. And they, you can explain that to them at that point. Yes. When you're giving help. Okay. And then I had a question. Um, can you tell me, we mentioned about the emergency assistance changes. Can you tell me some of the changes, just a briefing on what you're working on? So... I am not a Hennepin County worker. Um, so Hennepin County went through a redesign process 
which, let's see, they released the findings of that process in December. I think it was a six-month process. I went to two or three of those meetings. Um, And in short, I think the county's interest was how can we streamline this process um, to kind of cut down on maybe a number of forms or the amount of time. What I think was missed in that redesign process is you can't streamline humanity. Um, so we, I kept bringing up in some of the meetings that I came up with, the process itself, the time in which a process takes, yes, is an issue. But also the, the care, the workers, the interactions, the culture that makes people feel less than human when actually entering that process, no matter how long it takes, also needs to be addressed. And I don't feel like... Um, Hennigan County was really um, paying as much attention to that component of it. They're thinking about digitizing certain things. They're thinking about like how to make the process less cumbersome as paperwork goes so that they can kind of achieve the goal of decreasing time. Now, none of this has been implemented yet. They're trying it. They're going to pilot these new ideas. Um, but I still don't feel like they're addressing their culture. So to your point, that is just released what they've done. I think we got time for maybe one, maybe two more questions if they are short. Okay. Because y'all haven't mentioned this. Um, I hear y'all talking a lot, but nobody talks about child protection because that is big part of people being homeless too. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just saying that um, me myself, I I went into a regular shelter to get away from. Um, ha- I gave my kids to somebody else. I still had custody of my kids because I don't want to be picked at, looked at when I'm going through some hard times. So I'm just saying, child protection needs to step up and be in some of these meetings because they are participating some of this stuff. Because what I'm saying too is, I got a group called Freedom from the Streets. We have people that talks about this all the time. They be crying out because their kids got taken and then they can't get housing because they got to go through the paper because they supposed to be in where people with kids, families, but they can't because they don't have them and they got to be in a single person. So they don't know who to work with, who to turn to. Once they take this pistachio or whatever that is, oh, let's go over there, go over there. I'm just saying. Child protection needs to be in there. Mm-hmm. I have a question about uh, landlords forfeiting uh, deposits. Um, I, what happened to me is I applied for uh, some housing and I gave my deposit and gave my um, application fee. My dad was along with me. He's a 91-year-old veteran. Um, when I applied for the apartment, it said that was it, it was available, and I went down and gave filled out an application, gave everything, got approved, and then when I got ready to move in the apartment, they said it wasn't ready. And this was back in November, end of November, and then in December, it was supposed to say can move in on the 15th. The 15th came, I went to look at the place, it still wasn't ready. And I asked for my deposit back, and they said no. And I need to know who I need to talk to about getting deposit back. 
I'm really sorry that this happened to you, first of all, especially during the time when you're looking for housing for yeah. you and your father, that the stress and the time sensitivity of that moment is so difficult. I'm really sorry that that happened. This was just this past year, this, yeah, this winter? Was, yes. Heritage Park is where I applied. Okay. And they kept the deposit. They said that, uh, I don't know what they said, that I, after I said I didn't want the place, right. I had waited and waited and uh, nothing, nothing mm -hmm. Right, so we represent tenants in eviction cases mostly, but we could certainly call our office and we could get you pointed in the right direction. One of the yeah. things you might need to do to try to get some of that money back is take take that landlord to small claims court and um, prove That's the case $70 there. That's a $70 fee for doing that. Right, there are filing fees for court. It, depending on your income, the court will waive those fees in circum certain circumstances. What I recommend in your situation is to have this conversation with a, with a lawyer, though, to get some thorough legal advice. And, okay. and uh, I would also say that, uh, it, you know, especially if it's a if it's a landlord of Minneapolis that your council member would love to hear about the, uh, this kind of behavior, um, uh, because there might be some things on the regulatory side that we can do to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. OK, thank you. Thank you to everybody. I mean, uh, su uh, such a, a fantastic dialogue here. And, and again, we want to get to everybody. We want to hear from you. Uh, so, again, thank you to our distinguished panel. Uh, MPHA CEO Tracy Scott, Councilman Jeremiah Ellison, Dr. Brittany Lewis, and Attorney Joey Dobson. We really appreciate you guys. It was a moving and informative evening. The conversation continued after the panel was done. And that was exciting to us here at KMOJ because we know that housing is having a moment. That's the way a lot of different people are putting it. Housing is having a moment, and we want to be a part of making sure that if policy is changing, our community is participating and even leading those changes. So we were all ears before, during, and after the housing first. This was a post-panel conversation between Sean Lewis and Cassandra Bellio. Both of them have been in the audience. You might remember Sean from his comments about eviction and homelessness at the beginning of this half hour. Well, anyway, Sean and Cassandra let us listen in. When my boss asked me, so how do you like working in housing court? I said, oh, my God. I said, oh, my God. She said, Sean, what does that mean? And because you learn so much information about how things that go up there in housing court that the judge won't say you know, that the landlords room say. And when you're dealing with tenants, you find out. And people don't know. People just don't but know. Something that they didn't mention up there was, is that doing, like, the um, expungement, you can have the expungement off before the seven years. There's a... If there's a different floor, I think it's like the 13th floor, that you have to go to and ask for some separate paperwork, but they don't tell you that it's some other paperwork that you can get to have it expunged off sooner than, it, than, than, than they tell you that you can have it expunged off. I got the paper at home because I, I attended another housing form, and that's how I found out. Sean has worked for the Volunteer Lawyers Network, and Cassandra is a tenant who became an activist. They know each other from an organizing class where they learned how to fight for fair housing. Do stuff like that because some cities have it. Contacted a, a landlord this week, and um, but here's the catch: I've been riding past, and the property's been vacant for three months. Right. So I, he said, "Oh, rent's thirteen hundred, but he's he owned other property." So when I say, "Okay, well, do you accept Section 8? He was like, "Well, um, Section Eight will come out." 
but they'll make me go down on the rent, and I can't do that. So okay. I said, see, now, that's why you've probably been vacant for three months, because I've been riding past a property for the last three months, it's, and it's still vacant. I just rolled past it today, and it's still vacant. But the real question is, is he accepting application fees? Because you're not supposed to accept application fees, and then you don't rent to people if your unit's vacant. So. Except Section 8, I was done talking to him. Oh, okay. I didn't ask him a question after that. I just, okay. Okay. just asked. I just wanted to see. Because there were landlords making money by taking application fees and not renting their units out. And then they, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Then they changed the ordinance in Minneapolis. I can't speak for other other cities and stuff like that, but that's another way people can make money. That's the other thing that needs to change, though. Yeah. Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center, Brooklyn Park, South Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, we are all in totally two different but we're all together under Hennepin County, and every law and every policy, everything, everywhere is different. And so why? Right. That's why you have to get it passed at a state law. You know, like for Minneapolis, is an ordinance. If you're not a valid uh, renter's license, you're not supposed to accept rent. And when you start getting into other cities, the the ordinances aren't there or it's not clear. But in Minneapolis, if you if you... You're supposed to have a valid renter license. So one of the things we do is we screen to make sure the renter license is valid in Minneapolis because they're not supposed to be able to accept rent. When I start dealing with other cities, it's it's iffy. Okay. So you so are. Other, but then here's the thing, though. When eviction comes along, if you evicted and say you live out in Brooklyn Center, Brooklyn Park, you still have to come to the city, to Hennepin County, to go to court, which is Minneapolis. I understand it. Yeah, but you're right. If, if you want to have a greater impact and more uniformity, you want something at a state level passed as a, as a law, as a statute, where in the city it's an ordinance, which is a city law. So this conversation and others like it are helpful. Residents sharing information and making plans to work together. Tenants learning about rights and resources. People practicing telling their stories and using their voices. I got it out. I'm glad I got it out and heard, especially about child protection, because people need to listen and wake up. Because most people of color, kids are getting taken away. They don't place them in a household with their family. They place them in a household with somebody else. Um, most of the kids, I believe, that's taken away is is mostly with dirty clothes or not going to school. This is Janelle Freeman Anderson the woman who said she's with a group called Freedom from the Streets, she reminded the panel that parents with kids in the system have the housing cards stacked against them. Uh, I'm, my name is John, and I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. So I'm now here in the uh, Twin Cities. Well, I came here originally from uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina displacements and six other hurricanes right after that, as we know the story. John is also with Freedom from the Streets. He says he stays at the new Catholic charity shelter in downtown St. Paul. And I came up last year in October from Hurricane Harvey. So back and forth, back and forth. But each time that I come here, uh, I always try to find something that's community-based to try to deal with the situation of what the problems are here in Minnesota. Because some of the volunteers from Minnesota came to New Orleans and helped us as well. So it's a duality of uh, the community coming together despite being across the country in different states. The community coming together. That's what time it is if we're going to make housing more fair. There's work to do and progress being made. 
We'd like to hear your thoughts and experiences. Leave us a message on our Facebook page or at 899-KMOJ on Twitter or give us a call at 612-377-0594. And stay tuned for more Housing First programs on KMOJ. You've been listening to Housing First. KMOJ explores housing challenges and opportunities so our community can thrive. Housing First is produced by KMOJ and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.